So 1 John, we began this study uh, in October, and we've endeavored to give good attention to the details uh, of this extraordinary letter. We could easily have spent years in this letter. But um, John speaks to the life of God in the life of people. The life of God in the hearts of men and women and children. What does that look like? Are we different than non-believers? Do we, can we live the same as if nothing has happened since we have become a Christian? Every good teacher knows you need to wrap things up at the end. So this is kind of a summary message to bring together uh, the details that we have been looking at. And we're going to do this in a unique way. This, here's how we'll do it. We said that John has a very unique writing style. He's very warm. He's very engaging. You might know with this letter, uh, he is well probably into his 90s. And he is an exile for his faith. And he carries in his heart uh, the believers that he had leadership over or responsibility for. So he is writing to them. He is tender. He is also direct. And he's also very blunt at times. He uses the term liar. Very direct. In fact, he uses that more than anyone else. In fact, this is how we're going to look at 1 John this morning. We have on our slide, on the slide behind me, Ten words. These are words that John uses in First John. These are also words that John uses more than any other New Testament author. Right? So these are his favorites. These are uniquely from John. These are words that he uses more than anybody else. Peter, James, Paul, whomever else. These are John words here. With the exception of one. There is an, an imposter on this list. Anybody want to guess which one is not a word that John uses more than anyone else? Just kind of think about it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, while you're thinking about that, uh, remember John, he's, he writes cyclically. right? As you're reading the letter, you might... Like in chapter 4, you might say, haven't I seen that somewhere else? Well, the answer is yes, because John will tell you the same truth, but in a different way, using different words, different illustrations and such, to make sure we get the point. So the imposter word on this list is the word sin. Not surprisingly, other people use this word as well in the New Testament. In fact, Paul uses it a lot in the book of Romans itself, just by itself. 56 occurrences of the, of the word sin. Hard to speak about the gospel if you're not talking about sin, right? So we will begin with our imposter. We'll get him out of the way. Then we'll move on to all of John's words. John uses sin quite a bit, I must say. When we look at the message of John, when we look at the story that John is telling through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the instruction that he is giving each of us, we know that sin means to miss the mark. 
technically. Sin is falling short of God's glory. It is showing on the inside that we are not holy as God is or righteous. Sin is what stands before us and God who is infinitely holy. As believers in Christ, sin is that which will disrupt our fellowship, our enjoyment, our walk with the Lord. What does John say about sin? Two verses. Chapter 1, verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So John begins by reminding us that we are all, as Paul says, sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. The misguided notion that we are without sin, either before we become a believer or somehow as a believer we have arrived and we are without fault in all our ways. John says, can you just sit down? Right? I want to get on with my letter. But there's something else that John says about sin, and it's at the very center of the gospel. Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. There is one who is without sin, who is the only one who could deal and help those of us who are with sin, and his name is is Jesus Christ. And he came in order to deal with sin. That's why he came. That is the stated purpose of why Christ came, was to deal with sin. Now let's move on to our next word. Blood. John will use this word more than anybody else in the New Testament. Jesus' mission to take away sin, to deal with sin, was a messy process. It was not one in which he spoke a word and it was done. By destroying the works of the devil, Jesus... The creator of life, the sustainer of all things, laid down his life for us. We cannot write blood out of the gospel message. We cannot soften the blow. God is holy and we are not. God is just. The remarkable statement that John says in chapter 5, verse 6, speaking of Christ. This is he who came by water and blood. We noted that that's the baptism of Christ. His sinless life, the life that he lived in obedience to God, commissioned by his baptism. And blood, of course, is the cross. Jesus Christ, make sure you know who he's talking about. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. He goes back and he emphasizes what he just said, and he makes sure you do not understand him. 
there are many who would look solely at the life of Christ and the teachings of Christ and say, well, that's the sum total of Christianity. Jesus told us to live by the golden rule. There you go. We're done. Let's do it. That's not Christianity. That is a part of Christianity, but that is not Christianity. John says, don't you stop at the teaching or the life of Christ. It is the death of Christ. It is the death of Christ and the suffering of Christ and the blood that he shed that reconciled us to God, which leads us to a critical theological term. It's a big one, propitiation. What does it mean? We've talked about this. What does it mean? Propitiation. To appear, to appease or satisfaction. Watch how John ties together a lot of themes with this one word. Chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Of course, love is on our list. We'll get to that later. Notice who makes the first move. God does. God sent his son to be the one who would fully and completely and perfectly and in every way satisfies, satisfy the righteous wrath, indignation, of God on sin. What motivated that was the love of God making a way. He says, This is what love looks like. We'll develop this in just a little bit as well. But he shows us a practical way in which love is shown to us. God does not just say he loves us and that's it. Many people will do that. They'll say things, but we know they're empty words. There's no action to back it up. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And Christ himself is the propitiation, the appeasement, the satisfaction Of God's righteous justice. Now. Let's speak to our culture for just a moment. John was speaking to his culture and his generation. But of course the truth is that he's every generation has his own iteration of bad stuff. Right. So let's talk about the next word which is truth. John. John will speak about the truth more than anyone else in the New Testament. He will capture and show us, beginning with Jesus, what Jesus had to say. John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It is not your truth and her truth and their truth and his truth equals truth. It is the truth of God that is truth. Now, look at what he says in chapter 2. 
I write to you not because you do not know the truth. First of all, truth is knowable, right? That was kind of in question in his generation. But because you know it and because there is no, no lie is of the truth. John loves his contrasts. He loves to put two concepts before you and say, okay, here's two, pick one. I write to you not because you don't know the truth. You know the truth. It is defined. But because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth, he will remind us, chapter 4, verse 1, to test the spirits. Every generation will have its iterations of ideologies and philosophies, which Paul calls vain philosophies. That is why Jesus said in John chapter 8, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John chapter 8 verse 32. He said that, shockingly, right after verse 31 in which he said, you are indeed my disciples. You are truly my disciples if you continue or you abide in my word. God's truth. God's word. Now, God makes a way to deal with with sin through the shed blood of Jesus Christ who made true propitiation. All these words come together. This is the truth of the gospel. What is the result of the gospel? What is the primary blessing of the gospel? One word. Fellowship. Saints, what does scripture say before, uh, about us before we came to know Christ? Romans 8, we were enemies of God. Right? Our heart was not set in the right place at all. The gospel brings us into fellowship with God. Fellowship means to share the common life. The very definition of a Christian is that she or he is now in fellowship with God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 1 verse 8. Now, John. John, as we said from the very beginning, he's going to take key terms and he's going to develop them in different ways. The definition of a Christian is that we are in right fellowship with God. We have fellowship with God himself. Much in the gospel of John is speaking to developing that fellowship, guarding that fellowship, keeping our walk with the Lord pure so there's no disruption in that fellowship. Not our standing with God, but our enjoyment of Him experientially. Now I want you to take your Bibles, if you're not already there, to 1 John, and I want you to see it right in front of you. Chapter 1. Well, no, we'll start in verse 1. First couple verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked at and a touch with our hands concerning the word of life, speaking of Jesus. 
The life was made manifest and we have seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us that we have seen. He's saying the same thing over and over again. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. So John is speaking in a generation where this is called Gnosticism. This Gnostic thought was running rampant where truth was hard to define. There was secret truth, secret knowledge, all of these things. John just comes right out and says, look, I'm about to die. I'm about to go and be with my Savior forever. They can do whatever they want to me on the little island Patmos. I'm ready to go home. I'm old. But he wants to give good help and good support and comfort and direction to believers who maybe aren't about to go to heaven. He speaks about fellowship. But notice how he develops. Look at verse 4. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John says, contrary to all of the, the cultural commentators of the day, right? Back then, he said, actually, truth is knowable. It is definable. And truth has a name. His name is Jesus. Newsflash. We ate with him. We traveled with him. We watched him be the son of God in our midst. We are telling you, this is who he is. We know him. We saw him. And we want your fellowship to be with us and with God himself. That our joy, verse 4, would be complete. That we would be filled with joy. And this be, thus begins this sub-theme in 1 John of assurance. Joy comes through assurance. Be knowing that you know that you're saved. Being confident of that. We continue. Enter now a crucial term, Abide. Abide means to remain in, to continue in. We must intentionally remain or abide in fellowship with God. We have a responsibility in this. By giving care to this new relationship that we have. What a pleasure to know that the word abide is used on the other side as well. God abides with us. He's given us his spirit. It's a two-way street. Notice how John uses the word abide in 1 John chapter 3. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. That's a demonstration that you're in Christ and you're living it out. And God in him. Us keeping the commands of Christ shows that God is abiding in us. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Saints, God will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will never abandon us. His spirit continues, remains in us. That's why Jesus said, I'm with you until the very end. The Great Commission. So, 
Now we have a key Johannian term. This is really important. And this is John from beginning to end, top to bottom, side by side. The word born. The life of God in the life of people. Now, side note, theological terms. We talk about three big words with salvation. One of them is justification. That is that beautiful truth when our faith is in Christ that we are declared righteous, not guilty. Like that's it. You are declared to be as if you had no sin as Christ is because of what Christ has done for you. There's sanctification, which literally means just to set apart, right? There's a sense in which all of us have been set apart for God's glory as believers. There's the ongoing process in which we are made to be more like Christ, conforming us from one degree of glory to another to be more like Christ. That process is a beautiful process if you're watching in someone else. That process is painful Because there are times where God stretches us, he deepens us, and he roots out habits or mindsets that are not of him, and he makes us more and more like Christ. Where we are selfish, he shows us how to love better, how to be more conscious of other people around us. Then there's glorification. When we are with Christ, we are glorified. Forever, But there's a word that we tend to not put in that mix, and it's called regeneration, the new birth. It is the secret sauce to everything that John is talking about from chapter 1 to chapter 5. John uses the term born, born again. Remember what Jesus said right off the bat? Remember Nicodemus, John's gospel, chapter 3? Nicodemus, you know, well-known religious leader, Coming to him at the dead of night because he's embarrassed. He's like, something's not right here. You're not doing what we're doing. And you're raising the dead. So I'm going to go with you. Tell me more about you. And what does Jesus say? You must be born again. If you're not born again, you will not even see the kingdom of God. There has to be a rebirth. And that's what regeneration is. It is a new birth. It is the life of God in you. Paul puts it in different ways. Romans chapter 6. Our union with Christ. The definition again of a Christian is one who has been united with Christ. Now and forever. And that's why Paul says in Romans 6, sin will not have mastery over you. You are united to Christ. That's why chapter 8, Paul says, I mean, that, that whole last bit, he says, I am convinced that neither life nor death and has his long, long list will ever separate me now or in eternity from the love of Christ. It's beautiful. John will speak about this new birth over and over and over again in his little letter. He will talk about what it looks like to be born again. It's not rocket science. If the God of the universe is now living inside of you, you're not going to be the same Colin that you were five years ago. Simply put. 
So notice there's lots of examples, but we'll give you one. Notice what it looks like to have the life of God in you. This is crucial. Chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? Because God's seed abides in him. He's tying all these words, his favorite little words together, right? Born of God, sin obviously, abiding. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. That is, you're not the same person you were before. You're not going to live the way you did before. Why? Well, because God is in you. The life of God is now in you. Therefore, he calls it God's seed. It abides. It remains. It's not going anywhere. He can't keep on sinning. He can't keep on being the one he was before. Why? Because he's born of God. Do you see how he bookends that? With born of God. He begins by saying it. He ends by saying it. He's like, if you, don't, if you didn't hear me the first time, I'm going to say it again. Born of God, the seed, God's seed, his life remains in him. Now it works both ways. When we abandon the old, we press on to the new. John loves his contrast. So here's another one. Light and darkness. John loves to speak about Light versus darkness. So if we are now brought into fellowship with God, Paul put it so well in chapter 4. He he said, now that you're children of light, live like children of light. So John speaks about this, this truth that we know of, which is God is at work in our lives to make us more like Christ. We're alive. But we have a responsibility to walk with the Spirit. There's a tension there, right? That's why sanctification doesn't look the same for everyone, right? So we're in chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, right? So your walk confirms your, your profession or confession, And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Notice the word walk in light. Walk is an action. It's your life. It's your lifestyle. It's how you live. The Old Testament uses this as well. When we talk about our walk, it is how we live. It is our convictions. It is our priorities. It is our actions. It is our thoughts. It's how we live. John joins the Apostle Paul in saying, walk as children of light. Now we begin to conclude our consideration in 1 John. The Apostle of love will speak about love hands down more than anybody else in the New Testament. This is such a crucial and a beautiful truth. I could give you example after example after example, obviously. But I want to give you one, and it's right literally smack dab in the middle of the letter. It's chapter 3, and it's verse 1. Because, now this is really important. 
John is speaking about fellowship with God. He's speaking about being born again and all that that means. John is old. John knows these things. He's walked with Jesus. But let me tell you about some, something about John in his 90s being very uncomfortable, right? That he wasn't, this isn't a vacation getaway for him. Look at what he does. Remember we did a series on the word behold. I think it's the King James George that says behold here in the beginning of verse 1. See or behold what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God and that's what we are. John says, are you listening to what I'm saying? Is this sinking in? Are you getting it? Can you believe it? We are children of God. Look at this love that God has shown to us. He has been so good to us. He has covered our sins. Oh, and he didn't just say a word and it was done. No. I mean, the entire Old Testament is about Jesus coming, the Messiah coming. Even the angels longed to look in to see what they were talking about. They didn't get it. He says, look, are you guys tracking with me? Are you like letting the mundane get in the way of this glorious truth, this reality of who you are? It was true then and it's true now. There are a million things to distract us from this beautiful truth. There are many, 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 many things that will distract us, that will sideline us, that will take our our sense of awe and wonder away from this one beautiful, glorious truth. And so right in the middle of the letter, John, John just says, look, I, can you believe it? Can you believe it? That we should be called the children of God. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Echoes of Jesus, in this world you will have trials and tribulation. My friends, when you stand on the truth and you, and you live out the truth bathed in love, it will not always go well for you in the world. But look at what he continues. I should have put more on the slide. But we will read, uh, so we'll start in verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Now, listen to what he says, because the detail here is extraordinary. He says, beloved, we are children now. We do not become the children of God when we die and we see him face to face and we're in heaven. The truth of the matter is, we are God's children. We are born again. We are in fellowship with God. We're reconciled to God now. We are no, no more or no less a child of God than those who are in glory with him right now. And that ought to knock your socks off. And that's what John is saying. Where am I? I am in verse 2, I think, still. Um, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. That's what Jeff prayed earlier, this mo- earlier in the service. Because we will see him just as he is. 
There is coming a day when we will not die when we see him. We'll be like him. And thus the great gospel promise, Romans 8, 29, that he will conform us to the image of Christ will be fulfilled and it will be so forever and ever without, without end and amen. Now, there's an important statement, a little addendum, that not addendum, but a little thing he attaches to this in this verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Don't miss that part. The life of God in the life of people. The life of God, when we fix ourselves as believers on the hope that is to come, the hope that is ours, there's this process where we long and we desire to rid ourselves of our sinful, selfish ways. That's the life of God inside of us. A final word. No. K-N-O-W. The implications, the impact of this word no, as John uses it, is beyond my ability to adequately convey to you. John uses the word no over and over and over again all throughout his writings. I've selected one verse to highlight this. We know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the sparky key verse. Do you know 1 John 3.16? This is a verse that I commend to you to settle your mind on the entire week. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That is the truth and the beauty of the gospel wrapped up in a nutshell. Martin Luther said that John 3.16 is the gospel in a nutshell. I just would like to submit I'm not him. But this comes pretty close to. Watch what he says. He says this is what we know what love is. This is how we know what love looks like. That he laid down his life for us. Now I'd like, you to, I'd like to stop you for a moment and point you to put the emphasis on a different syllable that you have probably put it on before. The, the emphasis is not lay down his life. Of all weekends, we know that many people lay down their lives for others, which in itself is a beautiful, selfless act. That's the wrong syllable, though, when you read this verse. He. He. That's where you put the emphasis. He laid down his life. Why do I say that? Philippians chapter 2. In fact, I want you to turn there. This will be our last passage that we look at. Philippians chapter 2. Well, familiar verse or passage. 
Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves or in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Christ, co-eternal, co-almighty, with the Father, did not grasp onto that, but emptied himself. Taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. That is a statement that is not said about any one of us. And nor has it been said about anyone before or after Christ. As if it's a step down for us to be born. But for Jesus... It sure was. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 8. Being found in human form. Again, that's not normal terminology for us. He humbled himself further. By becoming obedient to the point of death. Again, that's something we don't say about ourselves. But he's not done. Even death on the cross. A cruel Roman cross. That's love. That's love. There is no greater expression or example of love in the history of history. But watch what he says next. We ought to lay our lives down. That love that was shown to us that is so beautiful, that should be us. We will never come close because we are just people. But for the love of all things good, we check our egos at the door. We give ourselves for other people. We're not in it to win it for ourselves. We're not forwarding our name or our reputation or running after X, Y, or Z, but we're living our life following Christ, showing love by our disposition, by our mindset, by our actions, by our priorities, where we put our money. That's love. So I ask you this question. This word is for each of us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We ought to lay our lives down for others. You think of the different aspects of your life, the different departments of your life, if you will, your resources, what you have. Are you generous or are you not? Your time. Is your time all about me, 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 or is it about others? Right? So on and on. I leave that as the application verse for us because those two things are connected. This is the beauty of living the Christian life. The Christian life is not being guilted about being guilted into doing things. Perish the thought. 
The Christian life is the energy, the life of God inside of us. We see and we do not lose sight of the fact that God has loved us so beautifully, so completely. And so what other response is there but to love others? Why? Because I am confident in the love that God has for me. I am freed now to love other people well. That's the gospel. That's the gospel in motion. One more verse to point you to as we close out. We will develop this word know, K-N-O-W, next week. With these words from John chapter 5, verse 11 and following. As John concludes his letter, he says this. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you might know. That you might know. That you might know. That you have eternal life. The doctrine of Christian assurance is that we can and should know that we know that we know that we have eternal life. When I know that, when I'm refreshed by that on a daily basis, it is the engine, it is the energy by which I serve other people, I love other people unconditionally. I have joy even in the midst of my trials. Why? Because I'm loved by God unconditionally. No one will ever know, no one will ever love me the way God loves me. Plain and simple. So I don't want to leave 1 John without speaking about assurance. Would you join me for a word of prayer? Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for this amazing letter thank you for john who's just a little bit different than all the other guys he writes differently he has a different priority different different perspective thank you for leading him by your holy spirit just as you did the rest thank you for these key themes in the in uh, john's first letter oh lord make us more like christ Help us, support us, energize us to love people well. With the gifts and the talents that you have given us, particularly within the household of God, that this would be a place where the love of God is, you can feel it. And oh Lord, we need to be refreshed in that. Thank you for the simplicity of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel message. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Our prayer is always if there is even one person in the sound of my voice now or later who has not come with bended knee to the cross of Jesus Christ. That they would put their confidence and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone as their Savior. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.